This podcast is brought to you by Kingdom at Work, a movement that seeks to inspire, equip, and ignite leaders to advance God's kingdom through their influence in the marketplace. Find out more at www.kingdomatwork.com, kingdomatwork.com. Hey, thanks for tuning into I Work For Him this afternoon as we broadcast to you from Rancho Mirage, California. His broadcast made possible through a collaboration between FCCI and Convene, and of course, I Work For Him. Check those guys out online, FCCI.org and ConveneNow.com. We are on location at the 2018 International Summit, a gathering of Christ followers who desire to live out their faith and their work while pursuing excellence above all. Today on the show, we've got two guys I've been chasing down for years, and I finally trapped them in California. We've got Steve Cockrum, and we've got Jeremy Kubitschek, and these guys run a company that you've heard about here on I Work For Him called Giant Worldwide. We finally caught these guys on the same continent, in the same state, in the same city, and in the same hotel as we're at, and we're going to capture their story today. Jeremy and Steve, welcome to I Work For Him. So Thank good to be you. with you. Thank you. It, it's great. You know, I got to read your book. We've, we've talked to some of your members. It's great to finally get to talk to you guys. Let, we always ask this question. We always ask this question at the beginning of every show. And no matter where we go in the conversation, how did you guys become followers of Jesus? Jeremy, go ahead first. How do we? How did I become a follower of Jesus? Well, when I was 13 years old, I had a, a, a really an opportunity to be apprenticed by a guy. He was a youth minister in my uh, in Shawnee, Oklahoma. No way, and, Shawnee, um, Oklahoma. That's right. And so he um, he was a college student, and but what he did is he just invested in me. And he actually walked me through a, a process of I mean, true discipleship, but it was like an apprenticeship process, and it wasn't just spiritual. It was it was leadership, it was life, it was all of it. And so we still have a great relationship today. And uh, so that that was where it started for me. Uh, the influence of one person focused on transformation and multiplication in in my life at a thirteen year old age. And he showed you right from the beginning that your faith would connect to every part of your life, not just your Sunday morning life. That's right. Yeah, it was much, much deeper than just uh, uh, a religious uh, event. You know, it was it was much deeper than that. So was he a student at Oklahoma Baptist University he was. at that point in uh-huh. time? Yep. Nice. My youth minister. The only reason I know that, I've been to Shawnee, Oklahoma, yeah. because my brother graduated from OBU. There you go. And so that's why I happen to know Shawnee, Oklahoma. I've actually been there. I was a little kid, but I was there. All right, Steve Cockrum, you're you're not from originally from the States, right? Ohio. <laughs> Ohio. <laughs> they talk London, Ohio. That's where it I is. I always say I'm from the first state, and then basically you lot ran away and built another fifty more. So <laughs> I, I'm from I'm from London. Uh, and do you so. still live there today? I do. We lived in America for five years, so uh, two years in the desert in Phoenix, and then three years on the beach in South Carolina. Um, all of them golf meccas, but uh, we love your country, love the culture, and one of the good things was I actually met Jeremy here. So there well, we go. praise God for that. Okay, so how did you come to be a follower of Jesus? Um, I grew up in a you know an incredible Christian home. Really, I'm one of these legacy uh, children. Grandparents prayed long before I was born, and I, I remember going on a camp um, when I was 12 years old, and uh, just heard somebody really share. I guess for the first time, it became personal for me. And I still remember they used to do like an interview at the end of the camp with the kind of commandant or whatever his name was. And I remember saying, "I hope you don't mind, but I, I kind of prayed the prayer last night, and I'd, I'd like to follow Jesus." And Looking back now, they must have been so thrilled. But at the time, I was slightly worried it would be not necessarily the done thing. So I was 12 years old, but really, I guess I grew up in faith. Um, my family are still all faith, you know, all the children, all the cousins, and a lot of them in ministry as well. So we're one of these very strange families where, in some ways, there's been um, health and faith has really kept us all together. Now, you're married. 
I am married. How many years have you been married? I've been married happily for 26. Helen for about 10 of them, I think, is the honest answer. <laughs> um, and we have three wife. girls. Three girls. So. Uh, we got to meet your wife last night across the table in the crowd. That was that was nice. Jeremy, what about you? Married? Yep, married 23 years. Uh, Kelly uh, has put up with me really well. We've got a uh, 20-year-old, 18-year-old, 16-year-old. Well, both of you have three kids. Yep. Nice. Now, ne- none of them, I mean, you got boys? Or? I have a girl, boy, girl. Girl, boy, girl. So mm-hmm. your boy, you know, you got him, You guys meshed up at all? We were looking at a no. matchmaking. You got, no. a cor- you got a corporate marriage. What about a Well, know, it was interesting because in uh, in 2013, we uh, Kelly and I moved to England, and as we were launching this uh, giant worldwide, and and Steve and I, we were both looking at uh, houses. We thought, well, we can we can both rent houses, or their lease was about up, and the market was really suppressed for large manors mm-hmm. and large houses. So. We decided let's go for the big. So we we got a ten bedroom manor on the oh by the River Thames. They lived in one wing. We lived on another wing. We shared the kitchen, and we had guests come and stay with us in the other rooms. Excellent. And uh, it was wow. just a really cool uh, season. Sure. Wow. But you didn't end up setting up any marriages no. between your kids. No, no. they're well, good the, friends. The, the, they were banned. They um, were banned. No. They were banned. <laughs> I've got all girls. Rules. I'm I'm short of something. I'm not sure whether it's X or Y, but I only have girls. So. <laughs> <laughs> that just makes you're short your li- of money <laughs> with with three girls. That right? just makes your life more exciting every day. Yeah. But it was. I mean that that experience I think was incredibly formative for for us really. Oh you know, sure. Um, you know, we, we, we spent a long time actually just talking, which for those of you who know Jeremy and I know that's not difficult. But we literally sat down. Both of us had come out of the end of, you know, other things we've been doing. And we really said, if God gave us another 20 years, what would we most love to do? Who would we most love to do it with? And in many ways, we had a, a blank piece of paper in this country estate, a bit like Downton Abbey. And we just sat and both our wives Without are... Without the drama. Both have, Well, there's plenty of drama. Don't <laughs> worry about that. But both our wives are introverts. And they're kind of going, you know, how can anyone talk for that long? But for Jeremy and I, it was the talking out of yeah. what, it, what have we learned so far? What have we observed in others? What have we experienced? It was almost like a really good age, about 42, where we kind of learned enough. Um, we'd experienced enough. And it was really then going, well, could we put that into something that would be useful yeah. for others? And so literally, it was a halftime experience for you guys. Yeah. You guys ever uh, read that book? Yeah. Mm-hmm. It was. I wouldn't say. Yeah, I read it. I wouldn't. It didn't feel that way. It didn't, but uh, you really were resetting. You're like, okay, yeah. g- okay, God, what's next? I know halftime. And yeah. it just didn't feel like that. It, okay. it, it was It was a much different uh, experience. But but both of us going, okay, the next, it was a next season. Sure. It wasn't the half that I was going to now be significant. Yeah, because we had already, already been significant, significant right? yeah. Got it. So we had been doing cattle, you know, we had catalyst conferences. Uh, had been leading the leader cast. Uh, we'd bought John Maxwell's assets. We'd been doing a lot. Steve had been in a very successful consulting business. So for both of us, and and doing significant works. So what we were what we were doing though, what what the the difference here was that we actually had seen so much information transfer that was out there that we were tired of not seeing enough transformation and not seeing multiplication. And that's the difference. There's a lot of people out there doing a lot of good things to get healthy, but most people don't know how to multiply. How do they actually scale uh, their health into, into the, those they lead? So I love the way you just said that. You said there was a lot of information transfer, but not a lot of transformation. That's right. And that's that's huge. And it is so true. There's so much information. Now, when you look at where we started our careers 30-plus years ago, and information was what you could glean from a white paper or from a book that was written, an encyclopedia that you found. And today, the you know, the 
the, the resources of the world are at your fingertips. I mean, it's a different deal. Mm-hmm. All right, so you guys have both been high-powered executives. I want to hear a little bit about your stories, your, your corporate stories. But I, I want to hear first how you guys have both been married a long time. How have you protected your marriages while you've run this corporate race? Steve, let's start with you. I think you may be overestimating, Jim, my corporate race on the grounds that my uh, early career, um, you look back on and think, I was a teacher. Okay. Um, I, I didn't really have a huge amount of uh, role models in life. I mean, I was overloved, overindulged, but nobody in my family had ever really gone much beyond a very local provincial life. So I was the first to go to college, first to kind of go out and do those things. And I prided myself in many ways on being able to do everything without really do any hard work, which I'm embarrassed about looking mm. back. But I was a teacher. I loved it. I taught, you know, for five years. I then went and trained to be a pastor. wasn't particularly good at that. I found I wanted people to change far quicker than, than they did. Um, so there was, you know, it was kind of, it was the thing where if you, if you were really keen and wanted to kind of uh, be a real Christian, then surely it meant becoming a pastor. And I think looking at that now, I look at it and go, do you know, I think there's a, there's a bigger kingdom calling of mm. which being oh. a church leader is one dimension. But that wasn't an option in those days. So, again, I did that for a bit. Um, ran a nightclub. That's a long story. We won't go there. You went from pastor to nightclub. Yeah, That's an interesting go. swing. At the same time, um, our church, <laughs> about 135 families, Baptist church, put in somewhere in the region of £850,000 to get this uh, bar nightclub up in Manchester. But it failed. Um, didn't fail from a missional understanding but economically let's just say the due diligence um, on the financial model wasn't as robust so I always say I did the most expensive kingdom MBA ever I think it cost about two million dollars so Giant hopefully is repaying some of that but through all of that you maintain your marriage and that's what was important she never ran away from you and I think that really is part of the the family legacy piece I I I think it's be fair to say um, in the midst of trying to avoid failure, because I'd never failed at anything, and this was very public with a lot of people's money who I loved, um, I think I was, I'd said, I would be physically present but emotionally and intellectually absent for probably the best part of two years. So mm. Helen we, Helen has a, a saintly award, I think. I think it was inevitable, and I think we grew with it. These guys run a company called Giant Worldwide, and guess what? It's worldwide. You can check it out online, giantworldwide.com, giantworldwide.com. And we're going to talk about what that company does and the ideas that these guys are are feeding the the wisdom these guys are feeding into corporate leaders across the world but we're first just finding out about who are these guys and stevie we're just sharing how (laughs) helen was just faithful to you even when you had some misadventures as a pastor which that's a tough job for a wife to be a wife of a pastor but then you guys opened a pub i gotta just ask because everybody that's listening is wanting to know why did a church open a pub nightclub a nightclub it wasn't a pub it was a nightclub so it's even even better even better (laughs) Uh, I think it, it, it really came down to the fact that ha- we were into seeker service at the time. You know, you remember that? Yes. But the reality was, um, in some ways, there was a whole group of people who would never come to our seeker services. Sure. And, and a friend of ours who uh, became a, a follower of Jesus, literally out of nowhere, one of those kind of Nicky Cruz type characters. Sure. And he just said, I, I want to reach back into that place. And the only way we can do that is if we're prepared to go and live our lives in their world because they don't get home till eight o'clock on a Sunday morning. So they're not going to be at your nine thirty service. Hmm. So really the idea of, I guess, incarnational mission, how do you, how do you go and live in the midst of what is um, a world that is very, very different. And certainly for me, who'd, you know, grown up in a relatively conservative to, to, to kind of understand something of that world. Um, and I guess also the spiritual 
battle that was there. I think that's probably what we underestimated, that we were literally going in to try and uh, find a way to be part of that culture. We won awards from the police. We won National Music Awards. We worked with drug agencies. We were, you know, it was an incredible learning experience. But ultimately, as I said, the, the business didn't survive. I ended up taking on the, uh, being the managing director of that. And all I did for kind of 10 months really was try and uh, deal with the fact we, we didn't have enough money to pay all our bills. We owed money to some very interesting characters, um, some of whom threatened to shoot me, shoot the children. It was kind of one of those, um, you know, if you probably a bit personal, but if, if you're going to know me, you sometimes look at it and go, well, everything looks wonderful. I would say that the, the experience of that, Ascension was the name of the nightclub, was one of those defining moments. I don't fear failure because we failed spectacularly. And in some ways, out of it came growth, a fair amount of humility, and and really, I think an understanding that a lot of my confidence was in God. Tell me what you want to happen, and I'll make it happen. Mm. So one of my, I guess, formational pieces was, Steve, you need to learn to walk one step behind what I'm doing, rather than run ahead with your own proud ideas. So I guess one of the things about Giant has been, we haven't tended to go that quickly. We've tended to go slowly. I suspect part of that seared with, I'd rather make sure we've got some cover before we go and take ground. So when you did the nightclub, <laughs> had you guys committed that to prayer, or was that your idea, help, trying to help God out in London? I think, I think there was a lot of prayer went into it, and I think there was, some, there was miracles along the way which led us to believe that we were really in the right place. I think in the end, it was something that we were called to do. I just think we were ill-equipped mm. to almost walk in. I think I believed if God had called us to do something, we just had to go and make it happen. Sure. But I think there was battles against principalities and powers that we were largely unaware of. And um, it, it really, I don't think any anyone who was in it came out completely. We were pretty beaten up by the end of it. I think God was gracious and threw in the towel. I learned about chapter 11. I learned about chapter 7. The last thing I did was trying to negotiate away all the personal guarantees that a lot of good people had signed. So most of us got completely cleaned out by the experience. Mm. Um, but through that adversity, was that when you and Jeremy met? I mean, is that when no, you met? no, no, no. That's a that's a long time. Okay, well, we'll hit that in a minute. Then I'm going to hit that in a second. <laughs> so, Jeremy, talk to us about your marriage. You've got what, what's your corporate career look like leading up to today? Uh, <clears throat> well, I'll go real real fast because I had a crazy twenty. My twenties were nuts. I moved to Russia when I was twenty one. Started an economic school with a group of, of people, uh, and then I started a marketing consulting business. We then had an accounting training team, and the whole uh, purpose was how to use business as a platform for influence, and that's something that uh, I was trained by a professor. I was apprenticed by a professor in college. I came up with this mantra of business uh, for me. That's why I think it's important. I mean, there's a lot of great nonprofits doing good things, but for me, um, my philosophy is let the world fund us to influence it. So that's the the goal. So let the world fund us to influence. So you've got to then create world class product that the that clients would want or need uh, need. So that so in Russia that's what happened. We we also had this marketing consulting. So we had Xerox and the Radisson Hotels fund us, and from that we were able to start all of these initiatives that were really impactful across the city in, in Moscow. Uh, my my father in law was in the my future father in law was in the Oklahoma City bombing. We moved back to Oklahoma because of that. I got married, and then we moved. Um, my wife's from Oklahoma, so we. Uh, then I, my dad has this philosophy, and he gave it to me in my twenties. He said, "In your in your twenties, it's not what you do; uh, it's who you work for that's most important." So I found a family uh, by the name, and those in the FCCI world know this. Kent Humphreys was the family I found I wanted to work for. Uh, 
So Kent was the former president of FCCI. And so um, I became basically a vice president of marketing over time. And um, so that was the who I wanted to work for. I happened to sell African-American hair care products. <laughs> As a white guy, that was not the normal uh, road. And so um, they, were, they sold the company. I went to work for the private equity group. Uh, then I got on the road and bought companies uh, with, with this, a group of three of us and climbed the ranks of that company. And we were a half-billion-dollar business. And I experienced a lot of negative of the world system of uh, domination and uh, just a really negative atmosphere. So I went from a great atmosphere and culture to a really negative, and that's really what shaped uh, Giant um, for me. So we started Giant in 2002, and uh, and my, my wife and I were involved in a uh, almost tragic car accident in Mexico mm-hmm. that shaped our entire life. And so uh, it, we had uh, miracles. We had things that happened. I lost my life, basically, and got to see my life flash before my eyes. So wow. that was all getting us ready uh, for the 30s and then 40s. Sure. So God really allowed a significant amount of, of adversity in both of your lives to take you to where you are today. So uh, we're talking today with uh, Steve Cockrum and Jeremy Kubicek from Giant Worldwide. Check them out online, giantworldwide.com, giantworldwide.com. I, okay, so how did you guys meet? How did, the, how did you guys get drawn together? Uh, eHarmony was the... Uh, <laughs> that's my joke. Everyone always asks me that. They look at us funny. Steve, like you the, answer the question. <laughs> Jeremy is not prepared, apparently. You know, that's a great idea, though, to have like a business <laughs> match. Friend Harmony? <laughs> <laughs> it's a joke. It's a joke. We've talked about doing Giant <laughs> Harmony. G Harmony, but that's another day. <laughs> another brand. Um, no, um, basically, I was working for a consulting business that was working really with churches and ministries in the U.S., and and Jeremy was um, one of the, the elders at the church we work with and just said, you need to meet this guy. Um, you two are going to get on really well. And I always trusted Mike when it came to people. I ended up coming to Atlanta. Jeremy had just bought, I think, Maxwell's Assets. And it was the first catalyst that you were running. I had no idea what this was. I'd never been to Atlanta. I ended up arriving on the ultimate blind date with a taxi ride of about an hour and 30 minutes. I thought I was being taken out into the bush to be shot, basically. I couldn't comprehend anything could be an hour and a half away by taxi. (laughs) But in Atlanta, that's like five miles. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Depending on what time you land. And basically uh, arrived at Jeremy's birthday party, um, stayed and... In some ways, we just became really good friends, and we almost became coached to each other, didn't we, really? And um, our families always got on. We, we kind of did some Thanksgivings together. We did some holidays together. We always, you know, we were working on different projects, but almost being a bit of a coach and a mentor to me. I, we used to walk along the beach. I still remember one, and I said, okay, Jeremy, how do I go to the next level? He said, Steve, he might have coated it in some sugar at the beginning, but he said, you need to learn how to maintain the relationships that are not at the center of your task world. When you're, when when I've when people are in your world, they get everything. But the moment they're not being useful in your task, it's a bit like the saloon door swings and mm. you've gone. I still remember it. So it's things like that where so maintain the relationships that are not in your task world. That's so, what you said. So, so people it, people that you need, you have deep relationships. When you're done needing them, your relationships get soured it, or no. It's, moldy. It, it's it's not. You see, it wasn't a conscious decision. Mm-hmm. I understand. But if you're a, a very task focused, purpose driven person, basically the people who get my attention are the people who are actually helping me win whatever we're trying to win. It's if you're not in that team, you've mm-hmm. gone from being feeling like you're the most precious thing in the world to, wow, where did Steve go? <laughs> and therefore, the questioning, well, was it, was it for real? Right. It was for real, but it's almost like learning how to do that. And he, he, 
he said, well, I said, well, how do I grow in that? And Jeremy went, well, find somebody who's really good at it. And I'm going like, well, like you. And he's like, so that's just a great so example. give your side of that story in a minute or less. Yeah, I'm just really good at that. <laughs> <laughs> joking. No, because the, the same, uh, so we would, we'd meet, but I uh, I needed him. So I, I didn't have a lot of voices around me that I could trust or really pour myself out to. And I had a really bad habit of sharing all my ideas to anyone who'd listen. And so I had to learn discretion and discipline. And so um, from that perspective, he would then be that voice. So we did. We ended up coaching each other uh, through some really interesting seasons. And we and we were doing, both of us were doing really big, significant things around the world. And, and our events were, were really strong and really big. But I just needed someone I could trust. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we started this uh, Giant Worldwide. And uh, because of the, the time and energy. So it was born out of friendship, born out of accountability, born out of trust. And born out of pain and, and <laughs> perseverance. <laughs> and suffering. Okay, okay, got all that. And we're talking today with the founders of Giant Worldwide, Jeremy Kubitschek and Steve Cockrum. These guys are a team that God brought together. And you, if you've just tuned in right now, you've missed the story of how God joined their lives together. And we're not going to repeat all that. We're going to jump into what Giant Worldwide is all about. Jeremy, why don't you give me... The 30-second intro-mercial on what's Giant Worldwide all about. And then we'll let Steve do the color. There you go. Okay, yeah. So Giant, uh, we are a global media and content development company specializing in leadership transformation. We have a consulting group um, of over 100 consultants working in about 15 countries or so, uh, working with from Pfizer uh, to uh, you know, BMW is a newer, newest um, client. Two um, more free plugs right so, here. Work um, for him. <laughs> so, <laughs> different companies of all shapes and sizes in these locations. We have a licensing um, team that we license uh, content. Uh, the Five Voices is one we can talk about, and then we have a new digital platform we're launching called Giant TV, and it's basically binge-worthy leadership series. So, if you're watching Netflix, the same concept we call it edutainment. And um, and so that launches this November. So we have a lot, uh, lot on. Any wow. color to that? Yeah, add some color to that, Steve Cockrum. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure you need any more color to the glorious rainbow. But uh, I think I think the reality is, we basically worked through our lives at creating. How did we create ways that people could learn from the things we've got wrong? And hmm. so I think if you really ask, where did all the content come from? Because people go, you have so much amazing content. Where do you get this from? And we usually say. We're usually reflecting on our own struggles, our own challenges, and particularly, I guess, working with clients and having to try and work out how do we help them solve the problems they're dealing with. So one of the things we'd often say is there is a lot of leader development material out there that was really designed for the industrial age, where information transfer was, you know, you you learn, you read. We're, We're actually now in this incredible kind of cultural transformation no one's quite sure what the digital age is, but what we know is it's changing work and it's therefore changing what leaders have to be equipped for. And I think about, as I said, five years ago, we literally sat down and, and, and said, okay, what are, what are the questions leaders are asking in the new world? We, we know and respect enormously those who've written in many ways the map of the old world, but in some ways leaders are dealing with completely different things. And so out of that came kind of five things that they were saying, these are the big issues for us. And that really became... How do we help them deal with those things? So if we're, you know, people go, well, have you been around a long time? I go, well, the reality is we're probably further on than anyone is at trying to address what does it mean to be a leader of organization in the digital world, mainly because our transition and beginning to work together happened to be just at almost that right time. So 
Hmm. Well, and when you look at, I mean, just the world even 20 years ago, nobody imagined that literally you could have employees in any place in the world and have instant access to those people with Hmm. video. I mean, nobody imagined Africa going from the dark ages to the wireless age in a decade. Nobody could imagine those kinds of things. So how many countries are you guys influencing companies in? Well, fifteen is 15, what we so have right now. Countries. Yeah, um, but the but the concept what Steve was talking about was in in today's world doesn't matter. I was just in Africa yesterday. Oh uh, I was in Kenya yesterday. Just came through last night. Um, the The reality is that most adults uh, they don't read anymore. They're task dominated. They're usually know it alls. They're very cynical, right? And so what that's done uh, to that point, what Steve was saying is that that we had to address it. So we've created visual tools and sign language to be able to scale throughout the entire organization. So we've actually created a language that people learn. And that's a real secret to uh, that, that's different than most people. Well, without giving away the recipe for the secret, give, give us an example of what you're talking about, this, this new language that you're communicating. Uh, well, we can use one. Our first book together was called The Five Gears. So the five gears is a emotional intelligence tool. So very easily, I can I can give you the five uh, gears. So the fifth gear is is uh, focus mode. Fourth gear is multitask. Third is social. Second is to connect and first recharge. What it does is you can call plays because a lot of influence happens inside organizations. People minimize their influence because they're in the wrong gear at the wrong time. An example: uh, we might be to dinner in a little bit. It's a third gear setting. Well, I was with someone last night at dinner. We all were just chit-chatting. Where are you from? Yeah. How many kids do you have? This one guy was really intense, and he just looks at me and goes, what do you do? Mm-hmm. So he went straight into fourth gear, and I was like, get me away from this guy because w- I'm there for social. So that's just an example of an emotional intelligence tool that all I can do is if we're in the, if we're in the s- same space together, I just have to hold up three fingers and go, hey, third gear. You're in third. So by calling that play, that would have helped him go, oh, yeah, what am I doing? I'm in the wrong gear. Versus, you know, sometimes you, you know, subjective uh, shaming. Mm-hmm. And so the gears have been, uh, you know, really well received because of that. And so then the five voices would be another uh, mm-hmm. concept to that. Anything to add, the five gears? I think, I mean, again, that came out of us living in the same home together. And basically, uh, I would always be up early working away, and Jeremy would come down into the kitchen, and I would go, hey, Jeremy, I need you on this, I need you on that. What's your opinion on this? He, he'd then go, good morning, Jeremy. How good are you, Jeremy? Steve. Would you like No, you were saying as if I said it to him. Yeah. So the idea is I was in the ah. wrong gear. <laughs> I was in work mode. I was in fourth gear. I'm ready to crack on. Jeremy's basically saying, hey, I need some time to warm up. Why can't we just do a bit of third gear connect? It really came out of... Again, all this of sounds it. like a great marriage tool. <laughs> oh, it's I think that we need to um, explore used, this. It's being used all over the country and world yeah. for for marriages. Because we deal with that. Because either Martha I've been up for a couple hours, or he, you know, and I'm like, <laughs> why can't you be on the same page as I'm on? Because I've been up longer, you know. Or, or she'll she'll I'll start with something. She goes, "Good morning, honey." Yep. <laughs> <laughs> the classic the classic one in my household is I sometimes struggle to do second gear, which is not work where I'm going deeper and we're really trying to connect. And the trouble is my brain defaults to fourth gear. If I'm, if I'm accidental, multitasking, multitasking okay. work, I'm always trying to solve complex problems. But it's funny and that kind of we'll sit with the kids mm-hmm. now and we've taught them this. Be careful what you teach the kids. They'll use it on yeah, you. They yes, will. they will. I'm, we're watching a family like show. So I'm actually, I'm in, a sec- I'm in a second year context. We're all together. And what comes out 
is work. And Izzy, my sort of eldest, looks at me and goes, come on, Dad, it's second gear time. Like, oh, yeah, sorry. So they actually are able to use sign language. And in the past, you know, <laughs> Helen would sometimes go, you know, hey, the kids are really missing you. You know, you're not around. You're kind of present. Be I, my temptation is to get defensive and go, mm-hmm. well, you've no idea how hard I'm working. I'm doing this for you and the family. Da, da, da. You, you know how it goes. Instead of Helen now just says, Steve, need some second gear. Yeah, I think you're stuck in fourth. We're all missing you. Can you schedule some second gear with us? Nice. So all of a sudden it's like... How do you respond to that? I go, now I go, of course, I'm so sorry. It's objective. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So most drama inside organizations, most of the issues are <laughs> subjective. It's just subjectivity. People going, hey, you know what? You need to step it up or pull <laughs> your head out or whatever it is. Mm. And it's like, that's not helpful. Mm-hmm. But objective might say, you know what, Steve, sometimes, you know, you, you kind of get into that fourth gear mode and then, then you go directly from fourth or fifth gear and then you go and crash into first gear because you've overworked. And the first gear was to, what? To recharge. Recharge. Okay. So. <laughs> oh, <laughs> my goodness. Okay. So this is like amazing. Okay. So that was we'll a great. sign the book for you later. Okay. That'd be great. That'd be great. Five years. The five voices. Give us, give us a, the summary of the five voices, Steve Cochran. So this one came out of really um, the. The, the understanding that basically people are fundamentally different. Most of us assume everyone's like us. I was married, I said, happily for 26 years, Helen for about 10 of them. And the main reason being is I had no idea what it was like to be on the other side of me. So I became a bit of an expert in personality, mainly, I think, because it was that look in the mirror and go, oh, my goodness, mm. that's what it's been like. So I think we became champions, really, of the voices which are not heard. So voices really was a simplification of Myers-Briggs, for those who speak that way. But it was a way of basically creating a simple vocabulary and language which everyone could use. So the nurturer is always the champion of relationships, relational harmony and values in a team. The creative is always the champion of uh, future ideas, organizational integrity, possibilities of what could be. Guardians are the champions of kind of process, system, due diligence, stewardship, connectors are the champions of relationships networking messaging and collaboration and the pioneers are championing strategic win you know um combat and basically a a desire to drive things forward and achieve things i mean that is a, a nutshell we all speak all five to some degree but we all have at least one which is what we would call foundational so if you can celebrate the contribution that each person brings and do it in an intentional way, you effectively take teams or even families to a completely different level in the way they can perform because most leaders are, you know, uh, we probably represent, I always assume that my default would be, well, I'm right and here's my strategic brilliance. Anyone disagree? Silence was agreement, in my opinion. It turned out that was not true. Everyone disagreed, but I carried a grenade launcher as my chosen weapon as a pioneer and anyone who disagreed, it was like, thump. Mm-hmm. And then it's like, no, I'm not That's playing with you good again. Sound. You got mm-hmm. that. So, Jeremy, how does that five, <laughs> the five voices play out in your family? So, uh, for uh, for me, I know all of our our voices. So, my my wife is a guardian. I'm a connector. We're complete opposites. My foundational voice hers. Um, and then when you have our kids. Well, both of us now, because my wife and I are on the same page, we now use objective language, not subjectivity. So, because of the language, then we know Will is a guardian. And our daughter, Addison, who's our oldest, she is a creative, and our youngest is a nurturer. So we have mm-hmm. three different kids. So what that does for us um, is it enables us to go, how do we support 
each one of them and how do we challenge each one of them. And it's very, very different on both sides. So we're for our kids. Do they know that we're for them? So for us and what I've been doing with our kids, when they turn 16, I take them through an apprenticeship track. And, um, but I do it based on their personality. So uh, in it, they have uh, a chance to go, do you want to be a job creator or do you want to have a job? Do you want to, and so I go through um, all the things from college and we go through IQ, EQ, PQ, and then spiritual, but it's all based on their voice. So it's now I'm translating directly to them. So they're receiving it different. So my son is on a very detailed guardian. He wants all the details and facts and here's our plans and programs. Here's where we're going. My nurturing daughter is like, well, what are we going to do? Like, who are we going to go see and be with? And it has nothing to do with the list. Mm-hmm. So that's, the, that's some ways that we've, we've been to drive into our family. And both of those examples, the five gears and the five voices, when you bring them into a corporate environment, you're talking transforming culture. Because oh. you're really putting the value into people. When we come back, I want to talk about that. And I also want to talk about your latest project, this 100X, because that seems like you're taking Giant Worldwide to a whole nother level. But these pieces, those are fantastic pieces. We're talking with Jeremy Kubicek and Steve Cochran from Giant Worldwide, a company that is impacting the culture of corporations in 15 countries. That's some great alliteration, guys. We were talking right before the break about the five gears and the five voices and how they impacted your families. Which are books that they've written. Which are books that you've written and are available, I imagine, on your website, Giant uh, Worldwide? Am- no, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. You don't even put them on your website? No, because we drive everything through. Right. Um, okay. Yeah. So, all right. So, Amazon.com. I can't believe we just get another free plug right here, and I work for him. Five gears and five voices. But this kind of stuff that's impacted and really transformed the culture of your families is what you guys bring into the cultures of corporations in order to bring transformation there, right? That's right. Absolutely. What we've done is we've, we basically have created uh, visual tools. And like we mentioned that people learn differently. Mm-hmm. And what we found is there's just a lot of people still doing 20th century leader development. So if, we, if you want to do leader development to your entire organization, then you have to create the tools and the visuals that a 13-year-old, an 18-year-old would get. It's got to be able to scale. So we've taken really complex ideas and we put it into visual tools. So how to eliminate gossip, um, the, the communication, um, how do you actually um, grow a business, um, how, what does influence look like? So we've got 50 tools mm-hmm. that we drop into cultures with the lenses of five voices with personality, five gears, uh, which is EQ, and then we work on some IQ tools as well. And so, so are you just teaching this to the leaders or are you infiltrating the entire organization? It, it, it goes through the subculture. So leaders define culture, sub-leaders define subculture. So if you want to change your culture, then yeah, it has to start at top. But it has to start at the subculture level as well. And the subculture levels are the key to the overall culture change. And no one ever goes there. And you can't, we always say you can't outsource culture. I mean, HR gets <laughs> kicked basically because we go, oh, our people aren't happy, the employment engagement, why aren't we doing X or Y? And we literally look the leaders in the eye and go, people, if you're not prepared to represent what you want the culture to be in your senior team, yeah. There is absolutely no chance it will get healthier as it goes down through. So in some senses, we always say we're looking for leaders that are hungry, humble, and smart, who actually understand that it begins with them. And in the end, they can't outsource that responsibility. So it, it's quite a, you know, and then we start with their senior team. 
And we usually say, guys, if it isn't transformational for you, don't forget most of these people have been through all kind of 20th century learning. They've sure. been, they've got the badge. They're slightly cynical. They've got the certificates on the wall. Even. And they've got, and they, we literally walk through with them. And in every single time they just go, wow. I mean, you read our mail and you basically describing, you're giving us tools not telling us what we should do. You're actually building a runway of how we get there. But you're ref- you're actually saying, if it's not going to be transformational for you, there's no point multiplying it. But we've also worked quite hard. At once they go, usually, this is awesome. How do we get this to a whole organization? Mm-hmm. Now, when you've got 35,000 employees and they're in five continents, that's forced a level of ingenuity and creativity in using licensing, using digital platforms. Because in the end, most organizations can't pay for the level of depth consulting that we do with the senior team. And so therefore we've had to look at how do we empower, raise up what we call internal Sherpas, people who are prepared to be kind of champions in their world and how do we work through them. So it's been a real learning curve for us, I would say. And down to the small business as well. It's the same function. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, big companies are really basically a culmination of smaller companies. Mm-hmm. So there's no size organization that can't benefit from this stuff. Absolutely. A- and so Or sector. I think five years on, we've worked with governments, we've worked with big businesses, we've worked with small businesses, we've worked with schools, we've worked with churches, we've worked with health hospitals. Yeah. It, it's, it's almost like there is a universal principle which says, how do I lead in a world which is different to the one that I was raised in? And who has some tools? Because we say if the new learning isn't visual, if it isn't interactive, and it isn't rapidly practical applicable to me, it doesn't matter how good your content is, if I'm not able to apply it immediately, it's pretty much gone. And I think its simplicity is its power. We've often said everything we do has to be simple, scalable, and sustainable. Because in the end, it, it you, you can inspire people. You can make people think you're very clever, which you know, we're tempted to do. But if, you're, if your metric success is to go, are we able to create lasting transformation in the behavior of people? And can we equip them to... Ex- to multiply the transformation they've experienced into the lives of those they lead. That really has been the, that was our vision at the the beginning. That's where 100X comes from. 100 is transformational change that can be multiplied. And we do want to talk about that next project that you guys have. Um, But I just have one question. When somebody's looking at engaging with Giant Worldwide, like is this a, I mean, you're going to transform the company in three months. Is this a a lifetime relationship with you guys? What does that look like for your average client? Yeah, so we'll look at them and it takes about three or four seconds and they just get it. No, I'm joking. (laughs) It's amazing. And then you move on. (laughs) Star Trek. So we have a couple of different ways. We have consultants that are out working with clients and doing that work. And that period of time, it depends on what they're trying to accomplish. Okay. Some people go, hey, let's try it on. Well, let's have one session with them. And some like, I want to truly do culture change. Well, culture truly takes about three to five years to change. Mm-hmm. But three years, this depends on the size of the company. Sure. But what we do is inside that doesn't mean that we're working with you for five years. That means that we've actually, you you've get the system. Mm-hmm. And then we would train people internally. So Steve was saying internal Sherpa. We use the metaphor of Mount Everest that goes a Sherpa is someone who helps someone climb. Mm-hmm. And that's an actual you know people group in, in uh, the Himalayas. Well, in our case, an internal Sherpa is we can train them. So it's not just train the trainer. It's train a person on the lifestyle, on a system. Because we're basically creating self-awareness processes. So people are becoming alive and they're seeing themselves for the first time. And they start leading themselves. 
when you get a person to lead themselves, it's so much easier for the leader. I mean, you guys are valuing people. Which is why I wanted to make sure we had you guys on today, because you are, you're drawing out into people. I mean, so often people run through this life hopeless. They run through this life. They don't really know who they are. They don't really know who they were created to be. And you guys are actually showing leaders of organizations to value the people underneath them through these different tools. Talk to us about 100X Leader. Yeah, so the idea of the 100X, like Steve was saying, 100 stands for transformation, X stands for multiplication. You've got certain people out there that are currently, a lot of leaders, 40 and divide sign. You've got some that are 60 negative, so they're, they're subtracting from people. Maybe a lot of people are 70 positive, but very few are 100X. So 100% healthy. So healthy in the way that you view yourself, know yourself, to lead yourself, understand the patterns that you have, and do something about it from a self-awareness standpoint. Then an X means I'm multiplying. So if you take Mount Everest, for instance, a lot of people climb Mount Everest. They spend $50,000. They get to the very, very top, and they get the, you know, yes, I made it. You know, they're, mm-hmm. they're screaming, and then, they're, and then they come back down, and they tell everyone in the world, I climbed Mount Everest. It's everywhere. The reality is they didn't climb Mount Everest. They had a Sherpa who helped them climb Mount Everest. It was a team effort. And it was a team effort. So, yes, they did, but the the Sherpas are different. And we've been talking to a lot of them and getting ready for our book and so forth. And a lot of. You've been talking to Sherpas? We've been been communicating to a few people that are. So, getting all of this information from Sherpas. We've got a lot of research on them. They celebrate. They don't celebrate how many times they've climbed, Ah. they celebrate how many times they've helped other people climb. So, the Sherpa mindset is actually very, very much on helping someone. So some people will you know, say that's servant leadership. Our view is servant leadership is a little even higher. It's high support and high challenge. So a Sherpa is helping someone climb, but there's some time to push mm-hmm. and challenge. Mm-hmm. So it's not just serve only. It's also to challenge. And so that culmination is what 100X is about. It's about a lifestyle of getting healthy, and then, so imagine if you climb Mount Everest, we got you to the top, and all of a sudden, um, Jim's there, and he's celebrating with everybody else. Then when you climb back down to the bottom, we go, okay, rest up, and in a few days, you're going to take someone else up. So your skill set to take Steve up the mountain is different than you climbing yourself. Mm-hmm. Well, I think one of the other remarkable things about the, if you're using the Sherpa as an example, is that the Sherpas often sacrifice their own lives to get people to the top of Mount Everest. They're Sherpas that die every year. That's right. And, and as leaders... That is sometimes the ultimate culmination of leadership for you to die in your position and let somebody else take your place because we need to we need to step aside and let the next generation come on. But that's really tough for some leaders to do. Steve, you're bursting. Go ahead. No, I'm, I went before I came, but thanks, Jim. That's no, true. I think the thing is that <laughs> – it's English humor, forgive me. Um, I think the thing that we keep coming up against is most people have no idea how to multiply even if they want to. But the reality is there's a prize and a price. And an awful lot of leaders work on themselves and they quite like taking the plaudits and the industry awards and the accolades and usually the financial return. It usually takes um, a pretty significant level of deep commitment to go, I'm going to learn how to intentionally multiply knowledge, skills and expertise into the lives of those I lead because apprenticeship is always costly Mm -hmm. (laughs) of time, of capital, of all the things that go with that. And there is a skill set that has to be learned. And the honest answer is we've, we've worked really hard at doing it. And that's one of the things we do with people inside organizations. How do you multiply? Steve Cockrum, Jeremy Kubitschek, thanks so much for being an I work for him. 
You got it. Thank, Thank you, you all. Us. Giant so. Worldwide, you want to transform your culture? you got to look up Giant Worldwide online, giantworldwide.com, giantworldwide.com. You've been listening to I Work For Him with your hosts, Jim and Martha Brangenberg. We're Christ followers. Our workplace, it's our mission field, but ultimately, I, I work, work for him. him.